Welcome to episode 46 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Hey, Jason, how's it going? Good. How about yourself? I'm a bit sleepy. It's a bit early on the, on a Saturday morning for me, but uh, I think it's we can ten, do it. It's 10.20. <laughs> That's <laughs> early. What time did you wake up? Like 9.30. What time did you go to sleep? About 11. Oh, 10 hours of sleep. <laughs> what do you think this is, Europe or something? We actually try and get shit done here in the US, you know? <laughs> I don't know what happened. I just, I, I, I was pretty sick over the weekend, actually, the last weekend. So I think that's still catching up on me. Wow. All right. Yeah. I'll let you off the hook this time. Okay. Thank you very kindly. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So what's, what's new? We, uh, we talked with uh, Taylor Norrish last week, print friendly. Um, but this week we need to hear what's going on with you. And we need to hear what's going on, going on with you. Right. Okay, yeah. so what, what's the latest with uh, Plugio and uh, Swarm? Um, well, Plugio is just, just doing nice. Um, I, thought it, I thought it was going to start going down, but it's, it's actually uh, the, the stats are going up. So the, the transaction level is still, is still kind of going up. It's certainly not going up by any decent percentage. I mean, it's going up by something like 1% a month. Which isn't, the, which isn't the best thing in the world, but at least it's growing. You know, at least more people are liking it and, and enjoying it. Um, I still have to get some some stuff in there, like um, the ability to view Twitter-initiated retweets through the through the real right. retweet API. Um, right. I've got like six major features, which I've, I'm just kind of waiting on some time to free up to put into it. Um, right. But apart from that, it's just kind of ticking along. Um, so that's kind of where Pluggio is at. Well, you know, it's, I, I can't remember what I had, re- I had re- read this recently, but it, they were talking about the how one of, hum- one of the biggest failings of, of the human brain is its failure to understand the exponential, which is that we tend to overestimate uh, growth in early stages and underestimate growth in later stages, we think in linear terms. Right. So that's why it's so easy to get discouraged with growth early, because it just seems like it's plodding along at such a slow pace. But then sort of it surprises you and takes off. And that's what uh, I think Taylor said last week with yeah. uh, Print Friendly, right? He was, yeah. He's depressed about the growth, and now, now he's starting to be pleasantly surprised. And what's funny, too, is when I initially had emailed him about being on the show probably – couple months ago yeah. he wasn't super excited about it he he was sort of um and then he emailed me later on uh and said that he had changed his mind and would like to be on the show but he said one of the reasons he wasn't excited early on is he just got depressed <laughs> he was just sort of <laughs> depressed about the growth of print friendly yeah he was thinking about you know going and working for the man again and 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 that was just a this very i think typical is that you have this really excited, optimistic view about what's going to happen early when in, when in fact early on the first, you know, six months, year, two years, whatever can be just very slow. Right, right. Well, I mean, that's certainly the experience of, uh, of, of Plugio. I mean, the funny thing about Plugio is the people who use it really love it. And, you know, they tell other people and it's, it's just totally word of mouth is how it's spreading. There isn't any other way that it's spreading because I'm certainly well, not really telling anybody. I mean, that's a good sign of people like it and are spreading word of mouth and that's 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 really what you need i mean i guess there are obviously things that you can do um to grow it in terms of you know you've done these some affiliate stuff and there are different ways of promoting it and things and i don't know how much you're doing or not but at the very least if it's growing organically through word of mouth and that's that's it's, your they're just saying it very slowly yeah, that's the essential piece. <laughs> it's so, not like they're going around telling 10 people. It's like every now and again, they're telling someone. 
Well, that's it. I mean, you know, how often do people go around and go, you got to try this. You got to, you know, occasionally a, a movie will come out or a, or someone will read a book that they love and they'll go around telling everybody. But usually it's, it's sort of a little bit at a time. I mean, people just don't, most people don't tend to do that. I, and the people who do are, are, are the, the term for them, they're called super spreaders. Right, right. <laughs> I think one of the term, I think that originated out of like people who spread viruses, like, you know, in the, um, <laughs> yeah. Was it the, uh, the, the, I can't remember the flu that was in the Asian flu right. a few years back? And there, there would be some people who would get infected, and they would hardly affect anybody else. But there were some people, once they were infected, it would infect you know, dozens of people around them. And they were termed super spreaders. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's kind of a similar concept, obviously. There are, you, you know, and I guess sometimes they're referred to as influencers, you know, people who yeah. have... Yeah you know, a big following on Twitter, a blog, and tend to, the things that they like, they tend to talk about them a lot and reinforce them, yeah. which is actually something we do with, say, titanium. Yeah, exactly. You know, we've talked We're about them. We're influencers. I'm sure that people have taken up titanium because of us. <laughs> we probably influ influenced at least five or six people. I got this really nice <laughs> message from, uh, from titanium and basically said, look, um, you know, Justin, since you're, a, since you're one of, like, a really special to us, uh, we'd like to offer you a month's free trial of the uh, upgrade premium support. And I was like, oh, finally, all of our work at texting paid off. <laughs> <laughs> you got a free trial month. Right. Yeah, but then I found out and spoke to a few other people uh, who are all members of Titanium and they all got the same message. <laughs> <laughs> you fell for it, huh? <laughs> yeah. Right. You, 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 you get those um, sweepstakes letters, you know, that you won, Justin. You get really excited. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just a small processing fee to, uh, to get your uh, winnings. Right, right. So um, I'll, do, I'll tell you about something that'll make you excited. I f finally started using Subversion. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, and what client are you using? Uh, using Tortoise SVN. Oh, good, good. Okay, that's good. Yeah, so, you know, we've talked about this. I think it was in the very first or at least the second show. I mentioned how um, on my own projects I, I wasn't using... Um, any type of source control that I would just copy the source code to a backup directory. And I, I essentially like every day or whenever I was about to make a big ch series of changes, instead of doing a commit, I would just copy the directory and give it a date. <laughs> right. right. So I had my own source control and then, I'd, and, and, and you know, every once in a while I'd copy to a backup drive or whatever, but it just wasn't a, a conventional, um, How long have you been using it? Oh, like maybe a week and a half or so. So Guyon, cause, I, cause this is one of the things that Guyon has been, pushing for for a long time right uh, and he's like hey so what do you think about maybe using uh, version control and i'm like ah yeah whatever I, it's just it's just that we have so little time to work on app ignite that you know the thought of just spending you didn't want to make the investment in setting it up yeah i just didn't want to do it i just like well okay so, so how are you finding it well let me tell you this so finally i just said Garner, look if you want to do it i don't have a problem with it and I, i'm not trying to be obstructionist but if you want to do it then go f i said i don't want to pay 10 or 20 dollars a month or something to host it on github or one of these places i said if there's a place we can find it that's free then i'll uh, you know then great and uh you just go and do the research and find something and set it up set up the account and i'll do it Right. And so he did. And he found a place called Assembla. It's A-S-S-E-M-B-L-A. Yeah, the company I work for uses Assembler. Yeah, one, so, one of my clients, yeah. Yeah, so you get a, yeah, I think I get at least one or maybe a couple of free uh, um, repositories. And so they give that away for free, but then they 
if you want it as the like you know issue tracking and things like that and um and that's always that's a great way to get people in they start using something like their repository and they're like okay well we might we need issue tracking so we might as well pay for that yeah and um so that was great. So we set that up, and, and yeah, Tortoise SVN is great, right? I mean, you know, essentially, obviously, all, all, you, all we do is, is, is you're editing it locally, and then whenever I want to do a commit, I just go to the uh, Windows Explorer, because I'm on Windows, and I just, in the directory, I just right-click and say, you know, SVN commit, and then it yeah. just says, okay, do you want to commit these? And write a little message that says, okay, yeah, this is what I changed, which, um, which is helpful, too. So, yeah, it's great. I mean... So, so the other thing is, is that... Um that it makes it really easy for you and him to basically share the code because it's it's a great transport mechanism as well. So when you commit yeah. stuff and he can commit, he can check out stuff locally if he is working on it locally, that is. See, that's all theoretical because that's what he said. He's like, oh, if I ever want to, you know, code on the weekend and I'm like, yeah, and so when has that happened? <laughs> you see, I think the only time we work, you know, in the last five years, I think it's happened maybe once. So if I can't remember where he's, coded uh, separately for me, usually what happens is that we use um, like a, a, a VNC, ultra VNC, he just logs into my desktop and we sort of pair code you pair together. Code. And Which is a- funny because you're so, cu- that's very cutting edge, right? Pair coding is very cutting edge, but yet just starting to use source control when you turn 40, that's outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, when when all the code that I've written is, I'm the only one who, who writes the code. I mean, it's not like I'm sharing. Well, you need source control really when you're working with other people, and as long as you make a backup directory, source control isn't that necessary. Obviously, uh, it's funny because um, I've I made a couple. I mean, with, since I've moved to the Mac because I'm new with the the, the OS and the way that it works. There's been like two times within the last month where I've lost I don't know maybe two hours of work through not understanding the system and um, not, not using source control correctly. And right. it's very frustrating. And I, and I wanted to actually warn you and tell you about, tell you about this, and this is for anyone else out there. One, one of the issues with um, Subversion is that it creates these invisible hidden directories, .svn directories, at every single branch of your code base. Right. And the hidden SVN directories is how it knows what revision the files are on and what the last state of the files were. And it, it's how it does the diffs and all that kind of stuff, right? And what happens is, if you if you want to do something, let's say, for example, I'll give you I'll give you the scenario with Swarm where I lost two hours of work. So what I did was I copied one um, to create a, like multiple skins. I copied all of okay. my CSS directory and all of my CSS files. I copied them and then duplicated them, and then you know, so now I had two. And then I started working on the second set as if it was a new skin, right? You, you understand where, where right. I'm coming from, yeah? Right. So, so what happens is the invisible SVN files are copied as well if you, if you do that. And they, mm-hmm. they, they then get completely confuse Subversion and confuse the Subversion client. So then you try and check in and it says you've got an out-of-date copy and then you end up going down all sorts of uh, spaghetti paths and it opens up a whole can of worms when you try and do a check-in. And then, you, and then you think you're clearing stuff out. And what you're actually doing is essentially deleting all the work you just did. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because, it, because it says, because the, 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 this does happen from time to time. And you, you need to go up and do a clean, clean repository. There's this tool called Clean It. Yeah. Okay. And cleaning it basically deletes all of the stuff that it thinks shouldn't be there. And the stuff that it thinks, thinks shouldn't be there is the stuff that you, you've copied. Right. So, so never, ever copy files directly, certainly directories, directly within a subversion 
just a local setup yeah exactly always create new folders always create new files and then you won't go wrong yeah you know one uh, one of the one of my clients um that i'm working with there's two other uh i guess developers who work oh actually employees of the of the company right and they set up uh, a subversion um uh, they set subversion for the code base, but they never set me up account for me. And they kept saying, "Oh yeah, 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 we'll, we'll set you up. We'll give you the info." And I never got it, but I still had to make code. And I was F- still FTPing stuff to development directory on their server, oh. and everything got kind of screwed up because they were writing over stuff that I was copying over, and I really wasn't sure. I didn't think they were editing on on that, on that dev directory. I thought it was just something that I was just coding on that they were working on a completely different sort of code base that was right. directed to the stuff I was doing. And I was just like, "Well, you know." whatever but it kept screwing things up because every time I'd, I'd be working and then like I'd log in and all of a sudden all everything was broken I'm like what is going on yeah so it's a nightmare I mean yeah if, once you, if you use it right obviously if you set it up and everybody's using it it's, it seems to be really good although one thing I found out one thing I, I don't know maybe you have a solution to it but the one thing that you can't do which I could do with say a, a backup directory yeah. a series of backup directories is I could do a, a, a text search I could just go and say oh what was that where, where did I use that code? You know that I that I used, and, and and it could be some code that you may have deleted six months ago. Or it's no longer uh, in the active code base. I mean, how do you do a search through all your all your old code to find, you know, maybe snippets of of, of things that you had done that you can't remember how you? Well, you need to make a point of um in when you commit, just put a message that says like when you commit a big piece of code. Mm-hmm. So let's say you're starting to work on something new. So. I don't know, App Ignite, you may be starting to work on creating virtual servers. So at the the point that you do that, you make a point of making a comment about that. So then you know that from that point forward, the next couple of check-ins are going to be related to that. So as long as you mention each of your big, big chunks of, you know, big module concepts of work, then you can just go, you can just browse the log and you can look through the log and you can go back and you can get to that point. And then you'll easily be able to quickly look in and find what you're looking for. Yeah, I mean that's that's better than nothing, but still not as good as, you know, because there could be some you know class or classes that you use. You're not going to describe every class that you use in a, in a commit message. You know, it's more of a high level, couple sentences. We did this, we did that. You know, but if you're if if you only can remember, it's like I know I use this class in the snippet of code, but I can't remember how I did something with it. You can't do it. That's the only thing that's that is uh, a little frustrating because I want to do that the other day, and I'm like, well, how am I going to do this? I'm going to search for that. It looks like there might. I mean, just looking on Stack Overflow, someone's asked the same question. Is there a way to perform a full text search of a subversion repository, including all the history? Right. And um, the answer is? If you're running Windows, have a look at SVN query. Oh, okay. It maintains a full index of local remote repositories. Every document ever committed to a repository gets indexed. You can do Google-like queries. Okay. That's, see, that's, that's what I need. That's what I want. Um, so I'll send you the link. That's svnquery.tigris.org. Okay, that sounds great. Cool. So yeah, so, um, well, you don't have to make one comment. You said, you know, it's, it's funny that I'm just now using Subversion, mm-hmm. you know, our version control that I like, I like, you know, essentially that I'm some kind of a Luddite. The, <laughs> the, the thing is that, you know, it, it's just, I, obviously, I, I'm cutting edge in some ways. I've done things at the very, you know, when I started getting Ajax, that was way before most people were doing stuff. And, right. you know, I think we may start experimenting with MongoDB and, you know, doing things with Titanium. Obviously, it's not that I just use old old tools. It's just I only use what I think I really need. I don't right. use just 
because people say I should or because everybody else is doing it or I just it's like if I don't see a real compelling logical reason why I personally have to use something or it's going to give me an advantage I don't do it because I, I have so much little time I, I can pretty much guarantee you that as as time goes on like let's say in six months time maybe a year's time mm-hmm. there'll be some times when when uh, subversion has really helped you out and and just being able the way that you can roll back and the way that you can do the diffs and all that stuff especially the diffs that's so helpful you know yeah. I, 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 when you when you check new files in, one thing that Subversion does is it, it in the version that you're using on Windows, mm-hmm. it lists it lists the files that changed. Right. You can double click on any of those files, and it shows you a really great diff of what happened between the last check in and what you're about to do. And for me, that's actually the single biggest benefit because you can just at that point make sure just you know just the last double check before you actually commit it. And it's gonna it's gonna help you fix so many errors that you were about to check in, because right. you can just kind of see it, and you're gonna go, oh god, yeah, I shouldn't be putting that in at this stage, you know. And right. It's just maybe like little little tra- little trace statements and little bits of it, you know, um, debug code and different stuff that you you'd just completely forgotten about. <laughs> now, how do you do? You do this at diff right before the commit? Yeah, right before the commit. So you know, you click the commit. So you go into your folder. You you go into the top the top directory. You right-click, do commit, and then it brings up the list of all the files that have changed. And then right. you, just, you just double-click on the on a file, the top one. It'll bring up the diff window. You have a look at the diffs, then you close that, then you double-click on the next one. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that sounds that's, that's that sounds really like useful. a good that sounds like a, a, a good idea. Yeah. So um, I, I had, had something for you. Um, accidental excellence. Mm-hmm. So this, this is something I wanted to discuss. And I, I was kind of thinking, um, I had, had an, an experience of this with Swarm. Uh, Swarm is the board game I'm building for iPad. Mm-hmm. And um, it kind of reminded me that essentially, this, this has happened to me a, <laughs> a few times. And it, it's kind of, I don't know whether it happens to other people. I'm interested to see whether it happens to you. But basically, what happened with Swarm is that I've been going along, you know, building it. And it it's, it's kind of looks, it has looked okay, but the graphics haven't been great. And mm-hmm. then I did the splash screen, and um, in in the the Photoshop, basically, I just applied a filter or did something weird, and it made the text and it made the splash screen really, really good. Accidentally, right. like accidentally great, and right. then it basically made the rest of the game look like a piece of shit. <laughs> right. So through this accidental excellence, right, I just I I basically then had to spend significant portion of time re-going over everything else, bringing it up to the same level as this accident. And um that's that's kind of happened to me a few times, you know, in coding frameworks and and multiple different um scenarios like that. And it's in a sense it's it's kind of a a way of raising, you know, it's an accidental way of raising your your output level. I just yeah, wondered well, what you thought of whether that kind of stuff's happened to you. Yeah, well, you know, there's the, I, th- I think um, there's a couple of things. One, it reminds me of um, g- sort of genetic algorithms, genetic programming, or just generally evolutionary theory, which is that there are sort of random things that, that you, you, like that happen. No, no, not, not quite the same thing. So for instance, um, if you have, uh, if you're trying to solve some really hard problem, right? And let's say, let's say you have some algorithm and you have 20 input variables and you have no idea which combination of input variables is going to give you the best, most optimal value. Okay. And, um, you can just, but because there's 20 or 50 input values, there's no way you can do a a complete search of the space. So you just kind of have to try things. So what, what way 
generic algorithms work is that you you, you might have like a hundred different copies of this out uh, sets of these parameter sets, a hundred yeah hundred different combination of these parameter sets, and you and you you evaluate how each one of them does, and the ones that do really well will will combine with the other ones that do really well or, or, or more often they will and then they'll create like offspring and those and you'll try those algorithms and you'll just keep track of the ones that do the best and but what happens at every generation when you have a hundred of these algorithms and before you reproduce and create variations on these algorithms you'll randomly switch around some of the input values for some of these parameter sets I see. and it's it what it does is it keeps you from what getting caught in what is called the local maximum so it's like if you're walking around blindfolded and you, you would just do what's called hill climbing, like you say, okay, this field, I don't want to get to the highest point. Let's say you're trying to get to the highest high ground. It's raining, it's going to flood, and you have a blindfold on. You're like, oh, you got to get to high ground. You just kind of get a sense if you're walking uphill and you just keep going uphill. You have no idea if you're even in the general right area. So by doing a uh, changing a parameter randomly, it's almost like uh, teleporting you to another another area in the city or something. And you you wherever you are in that area, you just start walking uphill. But you randomly want to just change a parameter just to change things up, and and because you don't get caught in and what's called a local a local interesting. Maximum. And that's kind of like what you're talking about. when you, when you by experimenting by just doing random stuff. Sometimes you learn things or have insights that you would never have had if you just do sort of predictable things. And that's also why you know all like release early, release often, experiment a lot, try random stuff. People say learn lots of different programming languages because. When you expose yourself to lots of different ideas, lots of different technologies, lots of different ways of thinking about things, different people, you, you just get a broader sense of things. And sometimes you come across stuff randomly can just dramatically improve. It's funny because when I think about it, like most of the, the, the main advancements for me as a developer that have made me better have, have come out of these kind of accidents, like yeah. the, the kind of stuff that you're talking about. And, and would you say that that's true for yourself as well? Hmm. Yeah, probably. It's hard for me to think exactly, but probably. You know, for instance, the 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 whole um, the whole iPhone project that I'm working on with Mark. It's we're building the thing of titanium, and it's you know I had had no experience developing uh, with Objective C or Cocoa or doing any kind of Mac development or any kind of mobile development. So I was starting from zero, and. You know, Mark really wanted to work with me, even though I told him I had no experience in that area, and I was very kind of nervous about it because I was like, I don't want to let him down, yeah. you know, and I don't want to get in over my head where we're in this thing a month, and I'm just looking, and I, and I just have to say to Mark, I I really don't know how to do this. Yeah, that <laughs> would be perfect. very painful. That would suck. You know, it'd suck even if you're working with someone you didn't know, but much less a really good friend of yours who has pretty high expectations of what you can do for him. So, but. I found titanium because I was perusing hacker news and just reading random articles while I was eating my breakfast one morning. And I was kind of reading through, you know, somebody talking. I was like some developer was talking about how she was working on her iPhone app and how she was learning Xcode and things. And just someone in the comments, sort of a random comment, hey, have you taken a look at titanium? And I was like, what the hell is titanium? It was random, right? Yeah, you know, if I wasn't reading Hacker News or I wasn't reading through comments or I wasn't just kind of checking out stuff, I would never have come across something like that. And and there's no way we would have seen the progress that we have with the iPhone app. I mean, the iPhone app version one is actually done. I mean, we're moving on to doing website stuff. I mean, Mark is coming over today, and we're just going to do a couple touch-ups, but that's it. Version one is done. That's very cool. When do you think it's going to be released? I don't know. You know, I guess they're they are uh, talking. They're they're in the sort of money raising phase, and um, they're getting the web 
we're getting the website because there's sort of a website aspect to it, right? As well as the uh, the mobile app, and um, the the web version of it has built been built almost entirely using AppIgnite, um, as I've mentioned on the show. Yeah. But uh, one thing that happened, and this is kind of funny, so they had to get uh, a design for the website. And that fell behind because, do you remember, this is, I don't know if people on the podcast have, uh, remember this, but a couple months ago or something, there was a designer who was living in Mexico who wrote a blog post that showed up on Hacker News talking about how he was living on $500 a month. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he was a freelance designer. And people were like, I think, up there, and, and the people kind of clicked in, looked at his portfolio and said, hey, this guy's pretty good. Man, this guy must be cheap. And as it turned out, and a lot of people on the, in the comments were talking about how he did a great job and how he was awesome and everything. And so I contacted Mark. I said, hey, you know, maybe check this guy out, right? And well, it turned out he, he got so much work from Hacker News, that Hacker News post, that I think he accepted too much of it and they just was unable to, you know, really um, complete a lot of the tasks. Right. So, <laughs> so uh, the, this project has fallen behind because there was several weeks of just waiting and waiting because of that guy on Hacker News. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think probably a young guy. He probably never, he probably just hasn't used to understanding, how, you know, how much work he can handle, and um, he just he just got in over his head, and you know, um, I, you know that, so that was have, a, you, have you found a new designer then? We did. Taylor Norrish from last week. <laughs> from last week. <laughs> which is another sort of random thing. So we 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 talked to Taylor because he wrote because he created Print Friendly, and I've talked about how much I love. Print friendly and uh, and uh, when he was on the show last week and he just kind of mentioned, or I don't know if we asked him about how he was doing freelance work. And then after the show, I'm like, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're a designer and you're you do freelance work. Are you available? And he said, yeah. I'm like, okay, let me set this up. So I connected uh, Taylor and Mark, and uh, he's already, I guess, got the first round of designs. And Mark's really excited. So that's going to help move things forward. So that was a real stumbling point. That's a nice benefit to the show there. Then so you've you've got you've you finally got some payback after putting in a year. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, I don't know if it's a big a deal for me, but it's just one of those things that, you know, you go out there and you talk to people and you meet people. It's just, uh, just opens up possibilities. And, um, you know, uh, just obviously we've met a lot of really cool and interesting people through the show and some of them we've stayed in contact with and, uh, you know, and, and, and it's like, you know, just it's random. It's a little bit of randomness to it all. I was thinking, but it's, about, it's, but it's just about getting out there and doing stuff. Yeah. Right? I was thinking, you know, we've got our 50th anniversary coming up soon. Right, 50th, 50th episode, yeah. I was wondering if maybe we should get some, I mean, have a stab at getting someone like John Dvorak on. You could try. That's, that's a reach. That would be a big reach, I think, Dvorak. I would love to. I've had I, a few emails back and forth with him. I did too. Well, you know, why don't we try? We'll try and get Dvorak on. He would be awesome if we could get him, even if he was only willing to do a, a segment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just wouldn't have to what, the, what the hell? It's worth a shot. Um, I was thinking too, you know who else I, I still want to get on? I've talked about is that Richard Dolan. I told you, he was the <laughs> well, guy who... He would make a good 50th as well. That's true. I thought too. He's the other one. And uh, Richard, for anyone who hasn't, who hasn't listened to the show that long, Richard Dolan wrote a book called UFOs in the National Security State. And I came across a... Um, uh, I guess a video of his of his on the uh, I don't know, YouTube or Google video or something, and uh, he's like a historian and he really did this sort of real nuts and bolts evidence based search through FOIA documents and all this stuff about 
you know, the UFOs and what the government has thought about them and done about them. And it's really interesting stuff. And um, I just uh, thought, and, I, and, I, and he has a book called UFOs and National Security State. And he's like, he's working on the third in the series. And uh, I just felt like, well, I just need to read his book at least before we invite him on. But the problem is the book's like five or six pages and it's like, it's uh, pretty, uh, I don't know, in depth. It's, and, di- it's didactic. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's 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 dry in a way. I mean, it's not like uh, it's not um, it's not like reading a novel or something. And I'm not always in the mood to like, okay. And so then the Air Force, you know, spotted three things on radar and were tracked over Sandia, and this happened, and then this is what was put out by the press, and then you're like, okay. And then the next, and the next, and because well, he's, he's taking um he's taking an unsensationalist approach. He's taking a scientific research approach yeah. about the whole thing, and he's just sort of saying, look, you know. This is this is what's happened. Draw your own conclusions. Yeah, pretty much. This is what happened. This is what the government said. This is what the FOIA document said. This is what this general said. This is what these radar guys said. This is what the pilot said. This is what was happened. You know, and you're like, huh, that's interesting. Um, okay, but so, so but anyway, just saying it's, it's a lot to get through. So I got to force myself to get through. I, I, don't, I don't think I should uh, send him an email until I finish. I think I've mentioned that a few times. But okay, let, be, okay, I just want to ask you a question, right? Mm-hmm. If, if it turned out that aliens did exist, that UFOs were real, Mm-hmm. What, did, what would how would it change you how would it change me i don't know i mean i mean assuming nothing changed like uh it wasn't like the <laughs> well but, i mean clearly yeah. it's, it's important to you right it's an so, important so, thing like, so, why is it important to you here's a scenario why, why is it important to me it's, yeah. i don't know it's like the existence of uh god or something i mean what could possibly be more more interesting than finding out we're uh, uh not alone in the universe so that so so okay. that's what it is. So so how would it change you then? Would it make you feel like as if you'd found God? No, I mean, I, you know, I think there are, there are you know billions of uh, what is it? There's you know billions of galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars. I mean, you know, the chance that there's life is probably pretty good. You know, whether it's anywhere near us or whether it's advanced, who knows? It'd just be interesting. I remember having a dream probably a long a ten fifteen years ago. It was a really funny dream where, um, so. I think I, I'm asleep in like these, uh, I think I'm, and I wake up and there's like this flying saucer or something like the backyard, right? <laughs> yeah. And they like, we come and they, they, they walk out. They're like, we are from another, you know, galaxy. I'm like, oh, cool. Like, so wait, so wait, are you guys like carbon based or not? And they're like, yes. I'm like, oh, well, that's really cool. like, wait, 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 wait a minute. And they're like, we have to go. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. So are there more races or are you the only one? Like there are more. I knew it. I'm like, okay, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen Mars Attacks by Tim Burton? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, lo- I love it when the guy, when the aliens are walking along and they've got this translation machine, and uh-huh. the translation machine is saying, "We come in peace. We mean you no harm." And they're like, as as they're carrying that, they're walking around with the guns, blowing people's brains out. Right, right, right. <laughs> oh man. Well, so anyway, I've said the dream, which is so. F- <laughs> with the funny part about the dream was that they wanted to go, but I kept asking them questions. <laughs> <laughs> just right. giving them the third degree, and uh, I don't know. I just, I just, it just would be uh, fascinating, you know. Now, so I, how I, would it change you? How would it change? I don't you? think it would. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. I don't. You know, it's not. It's not like some epic quest of my life. I just find it interesting. All right. You know, um, just like I find a lot of different things interesting. But I thought the the uh, just 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 talking. He he. It, Richard Dolan's and it's a fascinating. Uh, he's a, he's it's an interesting topic. He does a good job describing. He's fun to listen to, and uh, you know I think uh, it'd just be fun to have him on the show if we can get him. So I'm. Google. I'll tell you something that I find interesting that's slightly kind of outrageous. 
mm-hmm. is the concept of free energy. Mm-hmm. Have you have you looked into that much? Well, I've heard they hear they talk about this with zero point energy. Yeah, basically over, over unity machines and uh, just different technologies that can essentially create free energy. And um, there's there's an Irish company called Steel and S T E O R N who um, who claim to have who claim to have created free energy through using um, a magnetic kind of rotational device. Mm-hmm. And if you do if you do some research on them, um, you'll find out that they've had this this process of uh, scientists evaluating their technology. And um, ultimately they, <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny because it's like, you know, did you hear about the two, the two Irish guys who created free energy? But um, right. essentially they, ha- they haven't really been able to prove it. And whenever they've tried to do demonstrations, it hasn't worked. But yet they've kind of got millions of investment for this free energy device. Yeah, so. you, you know, that, that sounds kind of sketchy. I mean, you, you see a lot of those perpetual motion machines and you have these sort of like, you know, these claims. And then, and then when it comes to demonstration time, there's all these excuses why it doesn't work. And um, yeah, I mean, I'll, most of that stuff just sounds like complete BS, which is like what you'd expect. I mean, it's like with those guys um, who, who created, uh, who claimed to have created cold fusion back in the 80s. Right. Um, I can't remember their names. One, one guy was in, I think it was English. Another guy was like University of Utah or something. And, and, they, and it turned out just to be a chemical reaction. There's excess energy or something was just a chemical reaction. And they're I, chemists, I think. I could imagine free energy existing. Okay, I'm going to say something. This could be outrageous. I could imagine free energy existing, but I think it would be at the expense of a parallel universe. <laughs> so in Are other you words, watching Fringe or something? Yeah, no, but I can just. I, well, I, I've all, I've always thought this well, long before Fringe, but yeah, I do watch Fringe. I love Fringe, but um, I, I could just imagine that essentially we we were somehow seeping it in through parallel universe. So ultimately, they were paying the price. So it would look like it was free energy to You're us. You're sucking the energy from another. We're a vamp. We're like a vampire universe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, I don't know. I mean. You know, it's something that you could think of nuclear energy is almost like furniture. Like the, you, you split an atom or something, right. and the ener- the surplus energy is just, you know, massively greater than what was put into it. Right. So, in a sense, the, you know, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Like free energy, there's energy that can be exploited that's in one form, and if there's, you can create some transition state, you know, like with fission or fusion, either combining atoms or breaking atoms apart. You know, or even uh, extracting energy out of like you know oil. There's a there's a substance of ground oil, and then we can create this massive amount of energy, extract a massive amount of energy from it. So, you know, are there are there ways that are there going to be energy sources that we may discover in fifty or hundred or thousand years from now? Stuff with like matter and antimatter and some of these really exotic um, using really exotic physics and stuff. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, you know, if you had talked to two or three hundred years ago, and, and and you know, nobody would ever imagine nuclear power. Yeah. Right. It would seem ridiculous to the greatest scientific minds. Um, you know, so the physics that we understand now may be sort of uh, very primitive in the physics that we understand in the future, which may be able to harness different types of energy. Now, whether a couple Irish guys can come up with some perpetual motion machine, I highly doubt it. But <laughs> I don't know. There's actually a book that I saw that looked kind of interesting. It was a guy named Nick Cook, who... Um, He's a an editor writer for uh, I think it was called Jane's Jane's Magazine, which does um, they cover like uh, aerospace. They're like a real hardcore aerospace magazine. So if you're looking it, for coverage of all the latest like fighter jets and, and and military armaments, the magazine that covers that for people in the field is called uh, Jane's. Right. I think Jane's or Jane's Aerospace. So one of the editors I think it, for this guy Nick Cook. 
he actually wrote a book. I guess somebody had given some articles on something like on zero point energy, which is using, I guess, energy that was a, a, an approach that was something. It might have been. I may have this wrong, but Nikola Tesla who invented uh, alternating current and a bunch of other types of things. He's just sort invented. Of, or created or discovered. <laughs> discovered, or, right. You know, discovered alternating current, and which, of course, ended up beating out Edison's uh, direct current. And mm. there was a big, you know, sort of battle between them. And uh, so N- Nikola Tesla, I think, had experimented with, with pulling... Uh, power electricity out of the ionos- ionosphere and things and yeah. and I don't know whatever I think that the apparently the, the Nazis during World War II were experimenting with stuff like this and so this guy Nick Cook said all right I'm going to go and, and just do some research on what's the history of this sort of zero point energy and because a lot of these documents if you look at them, are all are sort of all classified now they've been kept top secret and are classified you know, the government so it's like well what's the big deal I mean if it's just bogus BS stuff then why is it classified right. so there's a there's a book I can't remember it's called like the quest or the search for zero point energy but because it's done by such a serious nuts uh, no nonsense you know aerospace expert like Nick Cook. It sounds like it might be kind of interesting, but I'll put a link to it. No, yeah, good to put a link to it and, and read it and, and then tell us uh, whether it's useful or not. Yeah, well, see, the, the, I think the key to all this stuff is like these things are fun to talk about, but you have to be careful not to get caught into BS. You know, it's like you got you to be skeptical. In the sense, like, OK, you know, I'm willing to talk about any of this stuff. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's there's enough evidence to believe it or take it seriously but it's still fun to talk about and still it reminds me of the conversations of the planimal <laughs> and my my my, uh, right. my buddy phil and uh mitch used to we used to have it our in our first startup back in the you know 15 years ago you know you just around, you take a break and he's like oh i wonder if you could ever have an organism that's half animal half plant and you're like all right well, you this saw is that, stupid you saw that they'd created synthetic life uh, recently like the first yeah the first piece yeah. of life that was entirely created out of synthetic components. That was uh, Venter, Craig Venter. That's a, yeah, that's, Craig a, Venter. that's a kind of breakthrough, I think. That's interesting. Yeah, so what they did is, and I, I meant to bring this up a, a show or two ago, so it's getting a little fuzzy because I didn't have a chance to review it, but essentially what they did is they constructed the DNA and then inserted it into, a, I think, a bacterium or something. Oh, I see, right. So, so, so they didn't construct, say, all of the machinery of the cell that uh, that are that are required to, um, you know, for life to propagate life. But they they artificially created, I think, the entire DNA sequence. That's, that, that's still scratch. Still kind of cool. Yeah. Well, you know, it's all baby steps. You know, it's like you, you know, it, it starts um, it starts at a place like that, and then they can build longer and longer sequences and things. And I, it's it's funny. I, I there's an article I think right now this morning. There's right up on the front of Hacker News. There's like it was I think a Microsoft research was like a programming language for um for creating uh, genetic genetic engineering. So something I wanted to to bring up is is it are you done with that or, or yep. can we? Um, just something about swarm that I wanted mm-hmm. to mention. Mm-hmm. Um, you know we were talking about uh, the AI aspect, right? You know that chess, right? That big, big blue, I think, by IBM. Deep blue. Deep. Oh, deep blue. Sorry. Can, IBM can, is referred to as, I think, and they consider big oh, blue. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think that, no, I think that. Um, their deep blue is the name of their, uh, it was the name of the, uh, uh, the, the chess algorithm. So, so chess. That, that thing can basically beat humans now, right? No, well, and I beat humans. I could beat, beat Kasparov, but this is back uh, in the late 90s. It's, so it's, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so in other words, computers can beat mankind in chess mm-hmm. full right. stop right mm-hmm. 
But I don't think that they can beat Swarm. I don't think that computers could beat mankind in Swarm. In mankind, you mean you? <laughs> well, I mean, like, if let's let's say let's say a lot of people played Swarm, and there was we you know there was a world championship for the game, right? And we there was the equivalent of a Kasparov in this game, right? I don't mm-hmm. think that a computer could ever beat him. Well, certainly Why? not not now, because the the search space is too large. Like the uh, search, I, was, well, I was looking at the search space, and it is it it really is it's it's practically infinite. Like it's just like yeah. Because the thing is, just well, I don't want to get into the text, but basically there is so many possibilities for every each single move. I think you know, like where in chess you've you know you can you've got sixteen pieces and you can move each piece in a couple of directions. Mm-hmm. Whereas right. with swarm, you can move every single piece on the board in every single direction. Right, and that's something I described to you, which make it will make it much more difficult to build um, a, a, an artificial intelligent algorithm. Um, for playing Swarm. It's not that it can't be done, it's just that you're probably going to have to use different techniques. So whereas um, a Deep Blue was built around the idea of, of basically look-ahead, so massive search space look-ahead and evaluation of board positions. So you would look, you would evaluate all these board positions, look ahead at different, see, see which ones were the best board positions based on them. But you know, there are, could be other ways that use heuristic methods that are not based on searching the entire space. Now, I haven't, I put in, you know, I haven't had a chance to put any time into really thinking very hard about it or look, doing any research on it or, or much less experimenting. But my guess is that you could probably come up with some, uh, some, um, some things that'll work. Now, whether it could build, whether they could beat a grandmaster at it, I, I don't know. I mean, there are world class uh, backgammon playing games. Um, you know, checkers. Uh, there are, I, you know, I mean, in Go is uh, is going uh, to be really hard because of the search space is so massive. I think, but backgammon is is has the stochastic element because you roll the dice. But isn't it kind of exciting that it that Swarm has the potential to be a strategy game that can't be that can't beat humans. Well, you know, there's, a, there's, a, I think it was called Clark's Law, which says anytime a a a, a an older um, a scientist says that something can be done, he's almost in, uh, entirely correct. And then whenever he says there's something that can't be done, he's almost surely wrong. <laughs> something can never be done. <laughs> okay. And you know, it's like saying something can never be beaten or whatever is obviously a very. Uh, questionable statement um, well it would be a question of time i mean like let's say let's e- even if you said okay it can be done it's not something that could be done very soon because uh i mean, mean I, I don't know I mean, I'd, I'd love someone i'd love someone who kind of really understood maths to calculate just how deep swarm is compared to something like chess or backgammon right right um hmm yeah, well, it would. Uh, yeah, it would be interesting to, to to do a little some calculation on the search on the size of the search space. But um, I, I, you know, I said, I, unfortunately, I just don't have the time to experiment with it right now. I'd yeah. love to, to build the AI, you know take a crack at building the AI for it. I think you're going to need something like that. I think for people to take off, they're going to need to play. Be have be able to play against the game. I think that's really going to be an essential component. Even if it, even if it can't be the grandmaster, but at least it's something to get them over a basic hump. The first just learning. I mean that that sh- you should be able to build something that can sort of play. Well, I, I definitely couldn't, not me. But oh, um, give it a shot. Try. Well, Try I've, got, I've, got, I've got lots of other stuff to do with it. But I'm, what I will do is I'll just you know I'll set up the um, I'll set up the the blog and and I'll 
basically post it to Hacker News and put out the competition of, of the AI. I, I can't well, even imagine how you could do it. I think the only way is with an expert system. I don't think you could do it with your concept of the neural net. Of, the, of a learning, of a self-learning, what's called yeah. like a, you're, you're doing it through self-play and um, it's called unsupervised learning. Um, I, I think you so. would need to kind of say, look, this is a sensible kind of move. This is a sensible move and get it to do that way rather than. Well, that's a first good start. A start. I mean, maybe you start there and that gives you some insight into how you, how different ways of thinking about it, but you build an expert system, even if it's not much of an expert, <laughs> but at least it's better than nothing. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it'd be a good thing. But here's the thing, though: if you build a framework for testing it and running it, so people can write algorithms for it and test against it on the web, then then you kind of are in a situation where you can kind of crowdsource the problem. It's kind of like the Netflix competition, where Netflix said, "Okay, if you can increase our um, what's that, our recommendation engine for recommending movies that people might like, and." Um, by more than by ten percent, they were going to give like a million dollars prize, and I think they, 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 I think it ran for like a couple years, and there was a lot of progress, right? And then it stopped at like you know eight percent better, eight point five percent, like really ground to halt. And then some of the best teams started combining, so it was like you know, and ultimately it was like a team that had, had combined with like three or four of the teams over the period period of the final year or something. Interesting. And they used all their best ideas. And, and there was another team that was very close, and they really fought it out right to the end. And it was almost the day of, because people were kind of holding back into the last minute. It was almost like doing a, doing a bit on eBay. <laughs> you don't want to be your best, best thing until the very end, because you don't want to get beaten, right? Uh, right at the last minute. So it was kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, they, they crowdsourced it. And of course, it did beat the best that the in-house uh, machine learning and AI experts could do at uh, Netflix. Um, and what so, was what was it that they were trying to uh, increase by ten percent? So Netflix, obviously, is a, for anyone who's not who doesn't live in the U.S. or doesn't use it or whatever, Netflix is a, is a service that you can um, say pay like ten dollars a month, and you can get you can go on the web and say, okay, I want this D, I want this one or two DVDs, and those will be mailed to you. And then when you're done watching it, you just send it back, and then they'll send you the next one that's in your queue of, of, of movies that you've selected to watch. Okay. Right. Now, one thing that how it keeps people in the services if they're actually using it. So if you sign up for it and you don't really use it, then that's not going to, then you're going to end up canceling it. But one way, one reason to keep people using it is if Netflix recommends, oh, you like, you know, this movie, you'll probably like these other three movies. And you're like, oh yeah, those are look good. And you put them in your queue and you watch them. So the recommendation engine is a big part of their sort of. But how uh, could you say, te- I mean, how could you say, how could you quantify how many percent better the recommendations are? You know, I'm not exactly sure what the, I, 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 didn't look that deep into it. I read an article about it or two. There was an article or two that were covered in Wired over the past couple of years. And I think I read a couple of things on the web, but I can't remember exactly what their uh, metrics were. But that was the essence of it. Um, but crowdsourcing a solution can often be a great way. Now, if you're not offering money or a prize, maybe you offer a prize. Well, I think, the, pr- I think, the, I think the, the prize is, is that their AI is the one that's in the game. And there'll be like multiple different AIs and each, each of them will have a name. I think you should offer a free iPad. Oh yeah, free free iPad. Yeah, I mean, you know, if someone's going to spend, if someone's going to spend, you know, even like a few weekends, kind of messing around with it, and you say, oh, but you know, it's like a free iPad. I mean, it's. I mean, you know, the idea of of anyone being motivated by a free iPad is a bit strange. I don't know, it's just something it's like five hundred you know, bucks. Yeah, well, I guess it's interesting though. It's interesting though, is that. 
Um, and obviously you can't, you're just a one guy, you're not a company, you can't really offer much. So, and there's that whole thing. Do you ever read Freakonomics? Uh, no, but I've, I've heard a lot about it. So Stephen Levitt is a, a professor of economics at University of Chicago, where, I, where actually I went to school. Sandy and I both went to school. And um, he, one of the things that they talk about in Freakonomics was this idea of like internal and external motivation. So like, for instance, if people are motivated by money or finan- uh, financial reward versus just um, sort of social rewards, and that oftentimes social rewards can be much stronger. And they give it, they give it a great example. One of the, cha- one of the uh, chapters they're talking about this was where um, there was a, uh, I guess it was like a preschool or, or something, and you know, you were supposed to pick up your kid by, say, say closed at 3 o'clock, you had to pick him up by 3.15. And, you know, what they decided, because some people were sometimes, you know, they had, they had teachers waiting around till 3.30 or, or 3.45 because parents were late on occasion. They said, what we're going to do is we're just going to charge people, you know, $20 or something like that if they're late. Well, as it now got way worse as soon as they charged your money, people were like, ah, you know, we're like, screw it, I'll, you know, like pay 20 bucks or something. It was not nearly as much of a motivation, even if it was 20 bucks for being 15 minutes late, it just, it, then it was just feeling guilty that you're making the teacher wait around. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you might be right. I mean, maybe it's, um, maybe it would be a stronger incentive just to have the sort of like, you know, hacker news, I am the king of swarm AI, I am the most brilliant AI guy in the world kind of thing. That'd be much, you know... Maybe that's be much more reward than saying an iPad. But I just said an iPad might be a nice yeah, uh, no, token I mean, yeah, to absolutely. say that you're like, hey, I'm just one guy, I don't have a lot of money, but uh, have an iPad. But it's almost like just the, the thought of giving an iPad, it's almost like, you know, tipping someone one cent. It's kind of, it feels like so low <laughs> compared to the amount of work and effort that they'd be putting yeah, in that it's almost right. like maybe I shouldn't even do that because that's kind of embarrassing. You know? Yeah, and maybe maybe that's right. You might be right about that. I mean, right after I said it, I sort of reminded me of the, the Freakonomics lesson. Yeah. So maybe maybe that is true. It'd be interesting. Maybe people have some uh, feedback on that. Okay, I've got another one for you. Um, okay. Have you seen yourworldoftext.com? No. Okay, this is, this is cool. So what, some, what someone's created is, is that you can go to yourworldoftext.com, mm-hmm. and if you go to the, the homepage, mm-hmm. um, essentially what it is is it's an infinitely scrollable canvas left and right okay and you click anywhere and you can drag it left and right and then if you click down you have a like a text insertion point like it like a terminal or something you right. can just type some type some text and then it just stays on the page unless someone else comes to those squares and deletes them or overwrites them or something mm-hmm. so it's it's sort of like um you know that pixel that pic, that million dollar homepage pixel yep. idea yep. it's it's sort of vaguely like that but it's with text and anyone can come along and write it but what's interesting is it's really it's really well executed like it's very kind of instantaneous and there's obviously like a couple of hundred people on the page at the same time just writing stuff and what's even more interesting is scrolling down really really far and there's there's people out there on the fringes just writing stuff (laughs) <laughs> right <laughs> even really far down you know and this is uh, my kingdom of text down here in this corner of the world yeah exactly and like people are you know people are basically scrolling as far as they can go and they're the ones who are kind of like chris mccandle going off to uh, uh alaska or whatever <laughs> right um but th- but so if you if you type yourworldoftext.com forward slash anything then it instantly creates a new space so that can be your space to type whatever. So, for example, if you go yourworldoftext.com forward slash Justin Vincent, then you get directly to MySpace 
and um, well, my my world of text rather than MySpace. Right. But uh, it's 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 just really well executed, and it's a it's an interesting concept. And um, it, I guess another way, it's a bit like chat roulette, but with text. <laughs> well, you know, I I, I I I glanced at it for a second, and um, I saw. Well, I feel you know, I kind of feel like compelled to. Um, at least take a look at any any articles that get a ton of votes on Hacker News. So if it's something we we need to talk about on the show, so I'm always looking for stuff that might be particularly interesting. So that was one of the things I think got a lot of votes. I checked it out, and I think people in the comments were really de- one guy was like really depressed because of like I guess there were a lot of very offensive comments on there. Yeah, well, it's you kids, know, kids, yeah. Right. It's like, well, what do you expect? <laughs> I mean, come on. Um, are you really depressed that people write offensive things? Have you been to a bath- public bathroom recently? <laughs> You know, it's like you go to a restaurant and it's just stuff all over the place. So, um, you know, it's kind of, that leads into another topic. Um, Do you, did you see there was something called Cells, a game a guy uh, described creating, which is called Cells, which is sort of like you would upload an algorithm or you would create an algorithm. I guess it was written Python and the algorithms would battle it out on this sort of grid. Right, yeah. Agents. And I was like, I come back and I'm like, uh, I think I described that exact thing. Like, right. it was like episode 40 of yeah. uh, texting me. I, I said, well, well, kind of what I was describing was similarly similar. His is not, is just a Python game. What I was thinking about would be creating just like this sort of world of text, whereas like, you know, would be like um, on the web and would be just pure, you know, JavaScript or whatever. And it would um, you'd use Comet to um, to have the real time streaming updates, but you could have this world of algorithms competing against each other in this sort of I kind of picture something that kind of looks like kind of Tetris, real simple blocks or little simple um, images, not something that's sort of like really advanced, like say Starcraft or anything, but something that's more um, more along the lines of a, of a, of a Tetris or, or something, but where these algorithms build up barriers and search for energy and fight each other and things like that. And it was kind of like what this is, except it's, I'm not sure it's supposed to be men on the web. Well, that, it, uh, go on, go on, sorry, you're not, you're not Well, finished. it reminded me a little of this world of text. It was kind of a high, it was kind of like, the, you know, this idea of that, that, uh, of just massively, you know, parallel type of com- environment, whether it's collaborative or competitive or whatever. Okay, for something to really take off, it should be like that, but like Spore. So basically, you can go into it and you, you build your little character that is, um, let's say, 20 by 20 pixels. Right. And it, it, can, it can have like boxing gloves or it can have a machine gun or whatever. And it just wanders off around the screen attacking all the other little characters that people build. Right. <laughs> you yeah. just see how well you how how long your little character can last and how much domination they can take. Yeah, and I was kind of thinking like some kind of hybrid where you can design it, but you can also create your own algorithms. Like it, right. it would it would have it might have like a way that you can define sort of the behaviors yourself. Like you can you know just using a very simple um, sort of rule based system, or you can actually upload your own algorithm, your you know JavaScript based algorithm for how how things behave. Um, and uh, you know, I was thinking you could maybe the the, the rule based system could be like a fuzzy logic controller, which which is an easy way for people sort of describe how things behave and 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 how systems work. But I don't know. That again, that that might fall in the category of I would do this if I had time. I'll probably never have the time, so it's all theoretical. But it'd be kind of cool to work on something like that. Did you see the guy who uh, was um, working on you know this civilization? Um, or was it, is it civilization or Sim City? Oh, yeah, that's what it was. It was Sim City. Did you see the guy who basically spent two years um, architecting 
<laughs> architecting the best city. Oh, like basic- authoritarian, completely authoritarian society. Did, did, we already, did we already talk about that? No, we didn't. I saw it though. And it, I, it I meant to watch it. I never got a chance though. It was really interesting. And like, literally he just thought of everything, like every tiny little component and the way that he built up society. I mean, he, he said it would be a horrific society to live in. Right. <laughs> just, by, just by the way that it, you know, um, it, it is basically, to, you know, it's, it's like totalitarian. Di- yeah. Like a dictatorship. Yeah. Right. Um, but uh, it, it, it was the most optimum society that just lasts and it would last another 10,000 years of real time, you know? Huh. Yeah, I'll we'll have to put a link to that. I need to check that out. That was on my to, my to watch list, I think. It was just like a two minute or five minute video of it, but I never. It was never, cool. It was cool. Yeah, that's. Huh. That's kind of interesting. So, um, so just the, the search for that for anyone, it's called. If you just search for um, Hacker News SimCity, you'll get the link. Um, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, I mentioned the game. I said this falls under the category of probably we'll never have time to work on it. I was, right. You know, there was an interesting article by um, Scott Adams, and it was, it was kind of, I think the, um, the, the title of the, thing, of the article was something like Ideas Are Worthless. Okay. And essentially ideas are worthless and execution is everything and it is sort of his, his, his statement in that, uh, you know, I guess – the the article essentially was about was that I guess there's a, there's been some talk or rumors going around that there might be a Dilbert movie, and I guess there he, he said that yeah there is an idea but it hasn't gotten anywhere yet there's no there's no deal with any actors or with any studios or anything, and some people were already commenting on it say oh that's that's a terrible idea it'll it'll never work besides there's already been office space and he's just like that is the dumbest thing i've ever heard it's like um here, here's this here's this quote which i thought was really funny he says the self-appointed movie critics went on to point out that office space was already a movie so there was no room left in the universe for a dilbert movie it's that's a bit like saying there's no point in creating a romantic comedy because someone already did that one <laughs> it's a fundamental misunderstanding <laughs> of what a movie is which is right i mean it's like it's so in another sense it's not the idea it's how you execute it and he goes on to say it's like you come up with an, an, an unending list of examples of things that sound like stupid ideas but because they were executed so well were incredibly successful and he's like you know titanic you know it's like the dumbest idea for a movie of course it did pretty well um he's like how about a a movie about two gay cowboys done academy award (laughs) how about a a comedic tv show about a nazi uh, concentration camp (laughs) right yeah Yeah, hogan's heroes yeah Uh, i mean but most most things sound like ridiculous ideas like for example i remember when i first heard of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> I just thought you loved that, it. You're like you fell in love with it. It was awesome. I, I, I just thought that sounds. How could that work? It just doesn't sound. It sounds so stupid. But yeah. you know. Yeah. So it's really. It really comes down to how well you execute things, and um, and uh, that's why. It's so getting caught up on ideas and being overly protective of ideas are kind, is kind of silly, um, because first of all, the chance that you're going to execute most of your ideas is probably slim and the fact that it really comes down to how you execute it they come the, the result is usually quite a bit different so even if you have the same idea what they end up looking like in the end they'll probably be different anyway so that's why now it's like i don't even worry about describing ideas or things i'm thinking about on the show because it's just it's just an idea right did you see the apple html5 showcase i have not okay i, I would seriously recommend anyone to have a look at this apple.com forward slash html5 Mm-hmm. Um, it it basically showcases the the you know what you can already do now with HTML5 
and the video stuff, the typography, uh, the transitions, audio. Um, you can do 360 stuff, virtual reality. And it's just, it's it's really, really good. Like, it's great. Definitely, yeah, so, definitely recommend having a look so at that. So what's the status on HTML5? I mean, what's the support platform on the browser? Have you done a, have you done a, a, a much of a search lately across browsers to see, like, you know, what's supported and what's not? Well, I mean, a, a lot of it is supported on um, on the you know the main browsers. I mean, Safari, um, Chrome, Firefox. I don't know about IE, but those three are, have a lot of support. So all the people who are sort of your early adopters are going to have uh, HTML5 support. So worrying about whether the the mass market is going to be fully supported may not even be important if you're if you have some HTML5 ideas especially if it's a new product. Well, here's here's the thing. Like I'm developing um Swarm for for iPad. iPad yeah. is rendered by Safari and I've already saved myself hours of time by using HTML5 and yeah. CSS CSS3. And uh, I mean just basically being able to do great typography, being able to flip stuff, have rounded corners, um, you know, transitions, animations, like it's fantastic. And because I know that it's only going to that one platform, it's fantastic. So, I mean, already just, just for that use case of building on Android, if, if you're building mobile stuff, you right. know, HTML5 is, is just great. You can build some fantastic stuff. Oh, so I have uh, something to, uh, thing to bring up. Um, so I, I, I described, I don't know, a few podcasts back about how my younger brother Jeff had um, saved this uh, yeah, this soldier's life. He, might, he, he, he flies Black Hawk helicopters and is stationed in Afghanistan currently. And uh, essentially what it was, the story is that um, there was really low visibility um, and they got a call in from some uh, this a very small outpost, and I guess one of the soldiers who was hit by a, a RPG came in to their camp and went through the gym and and just and I think killed someone. And uh, this guy was on the verge of death, and they needed to have him uh, evacuated to a hospital, or he was going to die. And so. Um, they got a call in at, at, at Jeff's base, and uh, they sent four helicopters out. And uh, because they sent four out because their visibility was so low that they were, you know, pretty sure that, it, that none of them were going to get through. And sure enough, they all came back. None of them could could. There was no visibility flying through the mountains. They couldn't couldn't do it. So Jeff went up to the um, the commander and told him, "He's like, I can do it." And so the commander said, "Okay." And uh, Jeff went through and, and, and flew through the mountains and got this uh, kid and took him to hospital and saved his life. So he, anyway, as a result, he was um, recommended for the Distinguished Flying Cross, which is like a, a really big deal, I guess, a medal. That's, oh, congratulations. And, it says, and the thing is for heroism or extraordinary achievement while participating in an aerial flight. And on top of it, he was written up, part, this part of the story was just in this month's uh, issue of Maxim Magazine, I guess. They, they, um, they uh, talk about they they interviewed some of these. Um, it's called the most dangerous job in the world. They interview some of these pilots and huh. they describe describe this. Although they they didn't really describe it in much detail. But anyway, so that was pretty cool. Um, luckily, he's going to be home in June for a while, and then home for good in September, which is going to put my mom my mom at ease. She's about to find. Have you watched Hurt Hurt Locker yet? I haven't. I really recommend that. Yeah, I've heard a lot of good things about it. I just, you know, I have so little time to watch movies. We just sit at the dinner with the kids and everything. I just haven't had a chance to 
Yeah, we went out. What do we see? Oh, we went out. <laughs> it, we finally. I just. I'd been working so much recently. I just. I told Sam. I was like, let's. Uh, let's go see a movie. I, we got. I got to take a break. Let's. And so we got a babysitter and went out and saw. Um, but everything. There's some good movies that were out, but they were all kind of serious movies, like a Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and I don't know. There's some other ones that looked interesting, but it was just like, Sandy wanted something that was sort of light, and so we went and saw Kick Ass. <laughs> oh. Have you heard of Kick Ass? Yeah, what a great movie. I've seen it. <laughs> was so funny. I I think it was a bit much for Sandy. So for anyone who hasn't seen Kick Ass, it's like I guess it's kind of a combination of like of two genres. One being sort of the 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 indie the teenage indie flick kind of like a Michael Sarah type of movie. Right. And you combine that with like a comic book ultra violence movie. So people getting their heads exploded and arms cut off and things like that. It's, yeah, so, it's, it's like I mean it's built as a cross between Kill Bill and Batman or something like that. Yeah, it was uh, it was funny. So we, that was the one movie we've seen, and we saw it like the the three dollar second run theater. Have you seen good. Fight Club? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's it's a little bit like Fight Club as well. It's got that kind of aspect to it of like you know lone lone hero wanting to get into a fight. Yeah, yeah I'd recommend it for the Netflix or something like that. I mean, it's not. I'm not I wouldn't go on to say it's like a, a phenomenal movie or something, but it's it's funny. Well, it's so like, have um, you seen The Crow? Oh, that one with uh, Brand- Brandon, um, Brandon Lee, Lee. Uh, yeah. uh, Bruce Lee's son. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like The Crow that was like in another the 80s. way. That yeah, was no, like- I know, I know, but I'm just saying that it would they they would if you watch those two mo- movies back to back, it would make sense. Hmm. Crow and Fight Club. No, Crow and um, Kickass. Okay. Crow and Kickass. Yeah. So it was. It was uh, at the end of watching it. I mean, I was laughing a lot, and I turned to Sandy, and I'm like, "What do you think?" And she's kind of like, "Eh." <laughs> <laughs> so much violence. I think it was just a bit much. But I think, I think for a lot of us guys who have grown up watching violent movies and or played video games are completely desensitized to that kind of stuff. I mean, it just comes across as comic book, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, someone gets their head chopped off. Eh, whatever. It's not real in that sense. We're desensitized to it. I, I know, you know, Sandy, you know, it's, that was a bit much. You know? I remember my mom seeing Blade Runner and she saw the opening scene. And she just, she was talking about it for the next while. She was just like, I can't believe that that's what the world's going to come to. And I don't want the world to end up like that. <laughs> like, it's just a movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one thing, you know, I think when you're, you get desensitized to things or you just, you get exposed to things and, and you're not so easily shocked, but we're not exposed to a lot of stuff. And then you suddenly are, you can be a, a lot to take in. Right. So for anyone who, who wasn't on the internet for a long time and then suddenly was like a lot of our parents, yeah, <laughs> it's easy for them to get shocked. Um, yeah. So, um, so what do we got next? Uh, are you interested in seeing that new movie Tron? Uh, let's this, I think we should get off the movie thing. Let's not keep. Okay. I'm, I'm a little worried with the movie thing. All right, but go ahead. We can do, do the movie thing. If you That's want. all I got we'll, to we'll, say. We'll, we'll, That's thing. it. I'm oh, finished. okay. Okay. I do. <laughs> this week in movies. <laughs> Tron, I, I, I think I, I saw a preview of it, but I don't really remember much about it. The only reason why I mention it is because it's in the HTML5 demos on Apple. So when, when, they're, oh, demoing, when they're demoing video, it's a trailer of Tron. And the movie does look kind of funky. <laughs> That's funny. That's cool. Yeah. Well, one thing I ask you about, what's the video support for the HTML5? Because I've seen some stuff pop up in Hacker News. I haven't had a chance to really explain, uh, play with it, but I've seen stuff where they, they seem like there's some good video support with it. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's just good. I mean, um, the, exa- the example that's shown on Apple, I don't know, what I can't quite tell is whether it's using um, Apple 
stuff or whether that's going to be there for everyone. But basically it's, it's a movie controller with a pause and, and, and a volume and a timeline that you can move backwards and forwards. Right. And, um, you can kind of easily plug into it and it's got tags such as autoplay and, you know, autoplay equals autoplay or autoplay equals no or whatever. Right. So, um, it, it just, it's just your basic movie stuff that you, that, that's kind of useful for showing video. Yeah, that's cool. And I'd like to play with that. The quality is great. I mean, certainly on the, on Apple, I mean, they're just, it's just on Safari what they've got, but the quality is just totally perfect. Right. Right. So, you know, I'm thinking about some like a uh, possibility of some new segments for the show. Go on. You know, how, you know, how we have like our, uh, get to know a listener. Yeah. <laughs> and we've had, we've experimented with that and we did La Critique right. a couple times and we've done, uh, the truth about comments or maybe ours is comments about comments. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I came up with a couple other ones. There's one we get is called that I call OMG. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh my God. Or Oh my geek. Right. It's like I guess uh, Sandy has on one of her homepages like my Yahoo and one of those things on I guess on my Yahoo is it like this sort of like this celebrity gossip OMG or something like that. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, we could do our own version of OMG. <laughs> so what would it be? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just oh, you just what you just like, it's just like a name. Of, the geek version of it. Yeah. Okay. Um, Another one is, uh, you know, like awesome new startup. So if there's any one particular startup that's particularly awesome, we're talking about. Uh, another one is uh, True Geek. So if there's an example of something that's so geeky, <laughs> it has to be pointed out. That is True Geek. Okay. And another one was Quote of the Week. So if there's any inter- really interesting quote that... So- so like do you fine. just have a bunch of names? I mean, do you have any content for any of these ideas or it's just... You- I don't have... I have, a, I have a content for the quote. I, I, I actually, actually, I track... I, I, I store or I save all interesting quotes that I come across. I have a whole bunch of good ones. <laughs> well, by uh, the way, that you've just, you've just fulfilled the geek segment there. That's nice. right. True geek. It's a combo. It's true geek. You are true, you, so you are this, this week's subject of true geek. Just saving quotes? Is, I don't think that really qualifies as true geek. Writing down interesting quotes. You think that's true geek? Um, yeah. Okay. On the geek scale of one to 10, what does that go at? And you're 10. I mean, running out, run, walking down the street in a Darth Vader costume. That's a 10. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, here's an example of true geek. Okay. So, uh, Guyon, well, I was working with Guyon the other day and this was late like at, you know, midnight, his time in Norway and his wife texted him through Google Talk on his on his on the computer from her Android asking about how to download an app. And that's that, true geek. I think for a, I think I think at the level of like husband wife texting each other on their mobile phones <laughs> about downloading apps, that's pretty geeky. Okay. <laughs> so you're just um, about to say the quote. Here's the quote I I had a whole bunch I picked from. I figured I thought this one was kind of I don't think anyone's probably heard this one. It says progress com- progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. The future is not an extrapolation of the past. Stanton, Stanton's law. Hmm. And uh, this guy, Stanton Friedman, he's a nuclear physicist who's, uh, and the reason I bring it up too is he's, uh, he's like one of the, like the grandfather of ufology. So he's like studied, you know, he was the guy who first came, you know, was studying sort of the, the Roswell, you know, uh, Area 51 stuff about, you know, that, you know, that there were, you know, alien technology was, 
you know, uh, was located there and stuff like that. Anyway, so I, I watched a couple of um, videos of his on, on, on YouTube while I was working the other day, and uh, that was one of them that popped up. He, he actually, uh, I think, I can't remember if I read, if I read an, an essay he wrote or he actually said it, but I thought that was a great quote. So progress comes from doing these differently in an unpredictable way. The future is not an extrapolation of the past. And that's why, you know, I think it's a very good point. You know, people always think, oh, things are just kind of move forward linearly, but you just don't know what's going to happen. It has that kind of do with that randomness we were talking about earlier. Right. Yeah, right. No, that's nice. So, nice um, thank you. Yes. <laughs> I, got a, I got a whole bunch of them. I got a that's, whole bunch. That, that's, I think that segment's going to fill up a lot of the airtime. Right. Oh, so here's, here's, um, here's a question I have for you. <laughs> How, what do you do to sort of, do you have a way of tracking your ideas or your thoughts? Like, I was thinking of something like, it's not just like idea, tracking like your patterns of thoughts, like how you thought of things, like to, so you can sort of, it's almost like you know, a, a version control, a subversion for your thoughts, right? It's, like it, it, you can yeah. reconstruct them. You can create a diff almost and reconstruct them. It's interesting. Where was, where was my mental state? What was I thinking about six weeks ago? There was a few things that were related yeah, that kind of stuff. Okay, so um, that's uh, interesting that you should say that because I just, um, what I tend to do is I have a, a bunch of different apps that I capture my ideas in. And mm. I always have something with me that, that allows me to capture ideas and I use the best, the best of what I have with me at the time. Okay. So on the iPhone, I use the Notes app, okay. um, which is the simple Notes app. But then when I want to start structuring it into more complex ideas, um, I have a, a thing called Outliner, which is okay. um, basically a way of uh, creating the hierarchical idea. You know, it's kind of putting hierarchy to the ideas. But, mm -hmm. but just a couple of days ago, I bought an app on the iPad, uh, which is a mind map app, mm -hmm. um, which is called um, iThoughts HD. Right. A and it really is very, very good. Um, and it's uh, so, so mind mapping on the, on the PC, I, I normally use FreeMind. Okay. Um, so with with FreeMind, you can you can just download that. That's free, and it's just real easy to get in, uh, to put in your ideas and put in notes, and then structure them hierarchically. Well, what, okay. Well, here's a couple things. Um, first of all, why don't you describe for people what mind mapping is exactly? Because mind mapping is not just uh, random diagrams of ideas. It's a specific, a very specific way of structuring how ideas are connected, right? Well, it's interesting because I'm not sure that I'm qualified to to describe what mind mapping is. I just know how I use it. I right. just know how I use, I use mind mapping software. And the reason why I use it is because it allows me to get a very high level. It basically, what it does is it allows me to get a high level look at something and get a detailed look at something. So okay. with the mind map software that I use, basically um, I start off, you start off with this kind of central theme, which is the middle of the mind map. Okay. And so for example, that could be swarm or it could be plug Right. And so then with, with any of these tools, you just click an add, add node button. And what it'll do is it'll add a first level. So that first level could be, so let's say it was swarm. So last night I was thinking, right, I need to add uh, multiple game types to swarm. So I just, I just double tap it and then type multiple games. So now it's got swarm. And then one of the branches of that is multiple games. And then I need to um, say, okay, so what are those multiple game types going to be? So then I add, uh, I'm saying, right, I want a simple game, I want a classic game, I want a championship game. So then they then come off as nodes of the, the multiple games. So basically the root is Swarm, then the, the first category is multiple games. Essentially it's exactly the same as um, File Explorer. 
you know, okay. where, where you can, where you have folders and you can basically expand and, um, uh, collapse. But right. The, but the thing is, is the mind map, a mind map software will allow you to, to make it so that rather than it looking like a folder, it kind of looks like a spider with all its legs stretching out in all directions. Right. So you can get a really good visual overview of the idea and, um, you can quickly break it down into its core components. And, uh, so for example, if I, if I, collapse everything except for the top level i have swarm as my main theme and then i have multiple games and then i have help videos so i right. know that I, I know that i have to focus on those two things so those were ideas that i was capturing last last night and um that's how i was using a mind mapping tool to capture them right right so yeah it's kind of interesting about the mind mapping thing though because one thing about ideas and stuff is how you structure them so and essentially these when you link these ideas they're just associations they're just sub ideas so it's not like it's forcing a structure on the ideas right right is that right because that's the thing about this stuff is that i always i'm always hesitant when things are sort of imposing a structure so like when you do like a hierarchy like an outliner well some things sometimes don't things aren't necessarily a hierarchy at least they aren't in my mind they're more just sort of loosely associated in some way um and there's sort of a multi-dimensional uh connection between them as opposed to just they're like well this is a sub item of this other thing um, I, mean, I mean i've actually found mind mapping to be the best way to create uh like if, if i'm if i'm starting a startup or if i'm starting with a new client and we're basically brainstorming and working on building out their concept or what they want to do right. i will i will use mind mapping I'll, as, as i'm talking to the client i'll be putting out the ideas and then essentially it, it acts as an extremely light form of documentation for their entire project. Right. You Which just, is pretty useful, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, but it's very, very, because with the good software, with FreeMind, you can move, you can just drag and drop nodes and move them around. So you can instantly change that hierarchy in that order. Right. So it, just like you're saying, you don't want to be stuck into a hierarchy, but essentially FreeMind allows you to not because it's so easy to, you know, change things and move things around just with drag and drop. Right. And then you can supply that to a client, you can supply that to any future developers, and they can get a snapshot of what, what you were thinking. Right, right. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I, I, I just, the way I do everything, I just write everything in, in, in Notepad. So a bunch right, of text yeah. files with, with collections of information. Because it's not all just like ideas. It's, it can be stuff, links, it can be phone numbers, it can be to-do lists, it can be anything. Rand, all kind of random, you know, structured unstructured information and yeah. i've been sort of thinking about an app that i want to build for myself um using app ignite i mean it's, it's not something i don't want to spend a lot of time on that's why I, I, one of the things i want to use app ignite for is to build these projects that I, idea things that i have that i think would be worth spending a few hours on but i don't want to spend you know days weeks or months on and one of them is a way of of like an information tracker they have lots of different types of structured information that's all related in ways that i want it to be related yeah and searchable and dated and different type given different times of public or private or shareability and things like that so interesting so all right so i got another uh, another uh, topic i want to bring up there was a, a blog post called um by a guy named bradford cross and it's called uh, the title of the post i think was called um software product granularity building depth first versus breadth first right and which is you know, I think something that's really worth thinking about because when you're working on code, when you're building your startup or your your project or whatever, it's really tempting to get in the depth first mentality. So you're working on a section, right? I mean, everybody when you first get started, a lot of times, you, you, yeah, you'll sketch out the real basics, but then you start building out the subsystems, and you're like, well, while I'm working on this, I might as well just do it right. 
You know, my mind is on it. Let's just kind of get this thing right. But the problem is that you're getting too detailed in, two, in, 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 in one area because you don't really know how everything's going to connect it. You don't even know if, how, how valuable that might be in the future. I mean, things might change. So it's best to get sort of a high-level view and just kind of work on everything in a period of iterations, and you keep going deeper and deeper on each subsystem. But you don't allow yourself to get sucked in because it's sort of, there's sort of like the siren song of, the, of building out the functional subsystem because as developers, we, you, your mind gets kind of locked in on a subsystem. You're having fun solving it. You just kind of want to finish it off and have it done. So rather than spending an hour or two just kind of you know, doing another iteration on that subsystem, you, you allocate two or three or four days on it. And you get sucked into it. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, crap, that was probably not the best use of my time. Well, I mean, I think to, to speak to that, before even getting into that stage, I think that you can, you can mock up with a tool like Balsamic Mockups your entire application. So basically you can go as deep as you like and you can go as wide as you like and it's not costing you very much. It's like it's so much cheaper to, to just do the front-end wireframe than it is to actually start coding. And in that set, if you do that using a combination of mind maps and Balsamix, so first of all, mind maps giving you a very light structure, an overview mm -hmm. of your entire project and all of the modules right. that you might need, and all capturing the ideas, then converting that into um, wireframe using Balsamix, which gives you the look and feel, and you can basically completely navigate your project, because with Balsamix you can link things together, and you can right. have hotspots and links. Then all of a sudden you've built the whole thing, right? And you can see what it's like. So you don't even need to think about, you know, subsystems or whatever until, you, until you've actually got this whole thing and you can show it to other people. And then when other people can use it and they can look at it and they can say, oh, well, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So then you've got this whole thing that exists, but it's just like the, the veneer of it and it costs you hardly anything to build it. Mm -hmm. Now you can start going into to the systems and subsystems and you're not going to waste very much time at all because you can understand the technical um, problems. Yeah, well, so that's exactly those are those are examples of breadth first. So the the mind map is the first iteration of the first breadth first search. You cover everything just in in, in, in very simple notes, right? Right. You don't write detailed documentation of one subsystem. You just write, you know, light first first iteration. Second time through, you cover all the base your bases again with the mockups. But then I think the next level is again coding out your user scenarios at a basic level, not getting too deep on every potential potential contingency, right? So it's like writing the the framework code. Is that what you're saying? So basically, well, saying I'm gonna, it's just creating the stub functions. So depth first is like the way they describe it, is building software, you know, function by function, whereas breadth first is sort of building scenario by scenario. Okay. Um, so by you know, say fully implementing cross functional scenarios um, before you move on to the next area scenario. But it would be, for instance, like a good example would be logging in. Right, you log in, and that's a scenario. But there's a scenario that I forgot my password, and then I have to have a new one generated and emailed to me and stuff like that. Well, that's a different scenario. Now, a depth force would go through and say, okay, well, I'm going to just spend a week working out all of the registration, login, forgot my password type of scenarios. Okay, 
but a breath first would just get the happy, what they call like the happy scenario. The happy scenario is that I didn't forget my password and I just log in. Okay. The sad scenario would be that you forgot your password, but that's a different scenario. So you, you just do one scenario in that, in that subsystem and then you move on and you do something else and you do kind of do all the happy scenarios, sort of the, the optimistic view through path through the system. And then you start doing some of your sad scenarios, <laughs> right? That's interesting. I mean, I, I've, I, I haven't done that in the past. What, what I would be doing at, at this stage is, um, I'd, I'd now, after doing the mind maps, sorry, after doing the mock-ups, I'd then be saying, right, what, what core modules do I need? And I'd be building the completely abstracted modules. So I'd be building the user registration module. Then I'd be right. building so you, the So you do, you do a couple iterations of breadth and then you go full functional on each one. Yeah, so exactly. So then I just build the functionality and then I just plug in a front end. Yeah, see, it's kind of interesting though. And here, here's an example with, 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 with App Ignite. So you know, one thing that we've been really focusing on recently is just building out all of the um, different ways that you can set up relationships between models. And so there's like the has many and belongs to type of relationship between two models. So like a post has many comments. A comment belongs to a post, right? And a many-to-many -many relationship would be, say, a photo has tags and a tag has many photos. So if you go like Flickr or something like that. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, and and there's another one I call like a references. So like, um, let's say that you created a um, a model called a status, like a project status, and then you'd have a project, and it would reference a status. So if you you select from a drop list, you know what's the status on this task, for instance. Yeah. Okay. So that references that model. That's sort of um, a variation. I think sometimes in Rails they might call that has one, but I'm not. I'm not sure that's right. Um, anyway, so but there's certain edge cases that get more complicated. So a many-to-many -many model is a little bit complicated, but then when you have multiple many-to-many -many models, so for instance, you know we talk about like um, a uh, a project. Um, has um, many uh, contributors. Let's say you go to GitHub or something, and a contributor can be contributing to multiple projects. Yeah. But you may also have another many-to-many -many relationship between projects you're committing to and projects you're just an observer of. Yeah. Okay, so you have multiple many-to-many -many relationships. So your join table ha is more complicated because you have, to have two different join tables, and you need to name them, and you, everything has to be worked off of the alias names for the projects. Because even though they're the same model, you're referring to them as, say, uh, by different names, so an alias name for the model type. Yeah. And another example, I'll just one more example, is that gets complicated is that when you have a self-referencing model, so a friend, a many-to-many self-referencing, that's a friend, like, a, you know, like, say, Facebook, who are my friends? Yeah. Now, what can get more complicated is if you have a has many uh, self-referencing or what I call, or what do you call a reflexive relationship is, um, so comments. So a comment can have sub-comments, so it's like a threaded comments. Um, I don't, there's not a whole lot of other examples of, of self-referencing sort of has many. But yeah, other than maybe like categories. So, like so a category, the, the a reason why you're talking about this was because of uh, saying whether you build the core stuff first. So exactly. Because we, we, we've kind of digressed into, into the, the different problems that you're trying to solve. But exactly. Your... Yeah. So the whole point is, and, and, this is, and this is almost a meta version of this, you're getting caught in sort of the weeds of this one problem, right? right? So rather than just kind of taking a first path and going, okay, well, we support some of the relationships, but rather than just saying, look, we're just not going to support or deal with right now, say, threaded comments, you know, or the reflexive has many relationship between a model. It's just, right. you know, we, we should, you know, just not allow that in the interface and just put punt, punt on that for six months. 
and put on the multiple many-to-many relationships. But instead, we're kind of in it. And so we spent the last you know, a couple weeks kind of solving all the edge issues to do with these sort of edge model cases, which are, aren't very common. I mean, they're not, they're not different examples of it, but it's So you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing? Or like, do you- I think I did the wrong thing. I already finished it. Right. But I think it was wrong to go that far down in, in that path. I should have punted on a couple of those things and moved on to some other uh, missing pieces that really need to be finished up. I, I completely agree with that. And, and I mean, when I'm, when I'm talking about going from um, a mock-up wireframe to building the, the core functionality, I'm definitely talking about building minimum viable release. You know, so, so that I, I concur with that completely. So anyway, um, but yeah, the, um, the idea of not getting stuck in the weeds on one problem, because what happens and what can be frustrating is you get really down in the nuts and bolts of some edge case in some subsystem. And, it, and sometimes you can just get waylaid by that. You can end up spending days or weeks trying to solve this edge case, which really isn't that important. And it really isn't giving you ins- any insight into the overall product. It's just, um, but what it does is it's sort of sapping your energy because yeah. you're not seeing any major improvements in the overall product. It's just as one very special case. And, yeah. um, you know, I, it wasn't a big deal in my case because we, you know, probably only spent a few days on this last one. The reflexive has many, but uh, in retrospect, I was like, you know, that's probably was, that was unnecessary. Yeah. You know, and sometimes it can happen because you don't think it's going to take three days or a week or whatever you think it's going to take <laughs> three or four hours. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the old story, isn't it? Although I guess in my case, three or four hours is three days because we only get to spend about an hour, hour and a half a day. So, um, but it, so in my case, it's particularly important not to get caught in that because you don't have sort of a huge amount of time. Yeah. So it really is important to, to do the breadth, keep hopping from system to system. Yeah, just- no, definitely. And, and, and that's kind of part of the reason of, of just getting it out there as well, you know, right. having people use it because that kind of forces you to do that. Right, right. Um, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Are you there? Oh, okay. I just heard, a, uh, I, I heard some kind of a, someone tried to call me and hung up and I thought it was you. Oh, right. No. So, so yeah, so you want to, you want to definitely focus on the breadth first. I thought that was a really good, um, that was a really good point. It's a really good uh, blog post and it's something to always remind yourself on because what you need to do is if you see, if you kind of feel yourself getting caught, yeah. you know, going down that path is just pick your head up and go, okay, leap, you know, write down some notes, back up on your code just put some notes so you can remind yourself where you were so you can always, you know, get back there. But don't don't get, feel like, oh, I, you know, I'm already started. I just got to finish it up. Because you don't know if you're going to finish it up in, in a half hour, an hour. It could end up, there could be more details that you're not even aware of. So just back it up and keep moving on the, the breadth first search. All right. Well, I think that, that um, we've, this, this has been a good show. Yeah, yeah. I think we're, I think we got enough, uh, I think we've covered enough topics. So... All right, that's a wrap. We're out.